welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swaim. Hi! Hello! Happy I, New Year! Thank you. Happy New Year. Really? It'll be just barely the New Year. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Because if this helps date when we're recording this, I drove through fire to be here, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> But yeah, and uh, we're all uh, doing okay, and we're here to talk about a really fascinating, not a novel, uh, just sort of an experimental, interesting document of a radio show and its own thing, and it's called God Bless You, Dr. Kevorkian. It's from October of 1999. Mm -hmm. And I think we can start with a segment, a new segment, called Cosmala Gut. This segment will only occur once, I can't imagine we'll do it again. (laughs) Agreed. Uh, This is a segment because this book has a really, really sci-fi uh, metaphysical premise. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about the cosmology of this world that Kurt has set up. Okay. Yeah. Because this, <laughs> uh, this is 1999 that the, he did this in, mm-hmm. or collected it in. Most of it aired in 98. But yeah. this is right around the time of Dr. Jack Kevorkian being a person who was involved in a uh, pushing for assisted suicide being an option for people. And so Vonnegut sets up a premise where Kevorkian helps Vonnegut have near-death experiences where he goes into the afterlife, which is he dies, you go through a blue tunnel, and then you reach like a yard in front of the pearly gates of heaven. Mm-hmm. And in that yard, you can meet St. Peter and you can also meet a lot of people who have died. It's sort of a holding area where you can cross over and If talk they're to willing them. to come out and be interviewed, like you can send a message in. The point of no return is if you go through the pearly gates, they won't let you come back to earth so yeah it's flatliners the book have did you see flatliners i thought that too yeah. I, I haven't seen it but i know the premise i didn't see the remake because it got terrible reviews but the original is pretty good with Kiefer sutherland and yeah. yeah yeah same premise near-death experiences to like see what the afterlife is like and then come back of course in that it leads to a haunting of some kind for no reason right there's all kinds of ramifications because you're fucking with yeah. the natural order now god has to punish you <laughs> But yeah, the Blue Tunnel originally from Galapagos, right? Made its first appearance. Yeah, and he's also, I think there's other books where there's been, uh, the afterlife is like a purple light or right. like a general kind of tunnel. It's it's a lot of the afterlife world that you expect from Vonnegut. One thing that's consistent is he thinks that the afterlife will be very flat. Yeah. He's depicted four different afterlives and there's never a mountain or hill. It's always like <laughs> flat as a billiard table, he says. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but he likes a flat, a nice flat heaven. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, well, yeah, it's sort of like Indianapolis, right? Like it's a flat square that was designed. Right, and it's sure. It is. It's, oh, okay. it's like when we were reading in Bagambo Snuffbox about him talking about the Midwest being mountainless and all flat, and that's its own thing. So heaven is so his heaven to be is, his hometown, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> just like uh, the main street at Disneyland, I guess, is what Walt Disney remembers his childhood town being like. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. but stuff is more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut is also down in Huntsville, Texas in this book, working with the, I believe, imprisoned or or working with the execution people, Dr. Kevorkian. And so he's strapped to a gurney, semi-executed, so he has a near-death experience and speaks to people. And then he comes back from that, and as he's being unstrapped, he records these radio shows for us in the living world. The book we get is the product of Kurt Vonnegut making an actual radio show for WNYC, where he performed all these interviews interviews on the radio. In yeah, and I don't yeah. think it was a full show that ran at 
once. They were like commercial bumpers. So one would yeah. come up in between shows and it was sort of as part of a membership drive, his way to contribute and try and bring people in. And he depicted himself as their reporter in the afterlife. Right. And the yeah. idea is that everyone is recorded into a tape deck like like a dream journal. He goes to the afterlife, interviews the person, they bring him back, he wakes up on the flatliner table, and they're like, here's the tape recorder, and he says what he remembers. Right. And yeah, that's what yeah. we're hearing, quote unquote, yeah. It's supposed to just be timely, but it's kind of a smear against Dr. Kravorkid, only in the sense that I don't think he'd do something that irresponsible. <laughs> I don't think he would agree to like, yeah, I'll use the death machine that's used for easing the suffering of like old cancer patients to see if you can interview Isaac Newton. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it, man. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, because I'm realizing that I think Kevorkian was a very, very 90s specific phenomenon, at he, least his own right. fame and his own it's life. like a Seinfeld episode. He found a thing from the time and he's like, I'll use that. Yeah, Kevorkian yeah, was yeah. very timely at the time. Yeah, and if people don't know who he was, he was a doctor who was providing euthanasia to people in the couple of states where that was legal. He was also sued many times and there were many trials involving him and he eventually was convicted of second-degree murder and served uh, eight years of a prison sentence, and Vonnegut writes his conviction into the book. It happens in the That's why they have to stop doing the experiments, right? Yeah. It's because Kravorkian just got convicted, which did really happen. Really, Uh, yeah. Which sucks, because he was a medical doctor, and he only killed people who really wanted to end their suffering. Right. I guess that could be controversial. I don't know. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. There, there was controversy around it, and still is. It, well, it's of course also there like, was. There just isn't in my mind. I think, oh, sure. I think it's a fine <laughs> service to provide. There's also an interesting thing to me, as I realized as I was reading, that Vonnegut kind of predicted people like Kevorkian. Like, it was things like Welcome to the Monkey House, or To Be or Not To Be, are stories where there's assisted suicide services readily available to people. I would argue, yeah, I do, just to be clear, I think it's irresponsible. Like, I do think those are dystopian stories because if someone is just depressed for a day, they shouldn't, ideally, it should be difficult to just, like, (laughs) manifest that into, then I'll kill myself. Because we'd have all these dead teens with their stomachs full of Howard Johnson's meals. Right. And uh, (laughs) just to be clear, Kevorkian was not doing that. It was right. it's specifically like I'm 85 and I'm gonna die in 18 months and I'm in terrible pain all the time. Let's just call it. And that I'm fine with. Yeah, his famous cases were people who uh, are terminal with Lou Gehrig's disease and, yeah. and situations like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's that's so now this he set world. the scene. It's the eve of the millennium. <laughs> and Vonnegut <laughs> drops his latest deuce. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, I forgot about the millennium completely. How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> well, let's get into the stories. Let's do it with a segment called Vana Interviews. Who is Who he interviewing? Are you? <laughs> What's your deal? <laughs> This is, uh, it's sort of like other segments where when we have a short story collection, we go through each short story. We're going to go through each chunk of the book. This uh, is sort of in three large parts. There's a first part where Vonnegut does an introduction talking about everything and how he became the reporter from the afterlife for WNYC, which is the real life New York public radio station that the interviews originally aired on as 
radio shows where Vonnegut recited it and performed it and did it. Current um, home of Snap Judgment and I believe Two Dope Queens, lots of other great – WNYC yeah, puts awesome, out good actually. stuff. Yeah, Yeah, On the Media is one of my favorite shows. On the Media is period. WNYC, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're great. Good. And so this is uh, – the introduction lays out a lot of that. There's more to it too. We'll, we'll talk about that in a sec, but just laying out the chunks. There's the intro, then there's – all of the interviews that he conducts from the afterlife, and then the last chunk is just an index of everyone he talked to. Uh, and my addition of it is pretty slim. This is definitely the shortest Vonnegut thing we've dealt with. You could read it before the episode's over, probably, if you rush. <laughs> you could read yeah, it if you if didn't you just blitz keep it. up. You could rush while we're talking. Right, if you ignore us completely. Right, yeah. <laughs> which is advisable. Um, even before the intro, I liked that it has the Library of Congress tagging info, and I just thought it was cool that the like Dewey Decimal genres that the book requests to be placed under, so to oh, speak. I didn't check them out. Are one, imaginary conversations, two, death fiction. Like, those are good <laughs> subgenres. <laughs> He's always slipping stuff into like the ISBN numbers and the legal lees in the beginning. I like that impulse. Yeah, that's fun. Like when he made one of the copyrights Ramjack Corporation in the past. Exactly. I think it was Dead Eye Dick. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great. There's also uh, mine, the front cover of it is an illustration by Jules Pfeiffer, who is a very famous cartoonist. From there, the, uh, the intro is a lot of this cosmology that we've already laid out and it's also a lot of big key Vonnegut sentiments about life many of them that he's said before and it's partly because he is excerpting a graduation speech that he did in May of 1999 at Agnes Scott College uh-huh. and so so the intro uh, like when he signs it and dates it it has two dates yeah. because it's the date he did the speech and also the day he wrote this up much like a classic sitcom episode he had two dates no but anyway <laughs> what I was actually the reason I said aha uh-huh is I feel like we finally discovered the actual source of why that wear sunscreen song is always misattributed to him. It must be this speech. Because here he says, in 1999, I gave a speech where some of the advice included shit like wear sunscreen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, but that's not the exact speech the text of that Boz Luhrmann song comes from. Right. And that must be where the confusion came from. So I was just pleased to like, you never get to find out where that comes from. <laughs> well, it, yeah, like like why it's attributed to Vonnegut. Why something yeah. apocryphal happened. And I think this is a clue, yeah. Does yours have the forward by Neil Gaiman? I, so mine doesn't, but I looked it up. Oh, okay. Uh, mine did to have read it. it. And cool. it's great. Yeah. So, so yeah, Neil Gaiman Some of them will it. also have that before the text of it. Yeah. But anyway, it's like, it's funny because it's just like a 300 word little ditty. It's act- but it's I nice love to know it. he loved Vonnegut that much that he's like, I want to get in there. I want to say nice things about Vonnegut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and hopefully you guys at home, uh, yours contains it because it's great. It, it uh, is a kind of tossed off feeling thing about one time when he talked to Vonnegut on the phone briefly, then a second made up meeting with Vonnegut in the fashion of this book's interviews. Like he pretends to go through the tunnel and talk to dead Vonnegut. Yeah. And it's tossed off in the way this book kind of feels to me. I loved it. But like, the, it was a tribute to the way it is by doing it like that. That's true. And I think the underlying point, each one has basically one underlying point. And the, I think the Neil Gaiman's underlying point was just that, like, Vonnegut affected his life so much. He's that person for him that he wishes before he died. Like, he wishes this was true. He tells yeah. a little fake story about going up to heaven and getting to tell Vonnegut how much he meant to him. But in real life, he can't actually do that. And it just made me think of, I live every couple days, I will remember, and it will give me, like, a pang 
of upsetness that Harlan Ellison is still alive and lives near oh, me, and what? I yet I have no way and no reason to like. But I I agree. I get that feeling. Like you, want, I want to go to his house, knock on his door, and be like, "You don't know me, but yeah, thank you." Man. It's like I just saw Patton Oswalt tweet. Oh, I had breakfast with Harlan Ellison today. He's still so interesting to talk to. And I'm like, that's the first time I've been jealous of Patton Oswalt's life. Like, <laughs> I want to switch bodies with you right now just for breakfast. Yeah. Man, if if anybody listening can can put Michael in touch with Harlan Ellison, please you do. Go. Like, you, you don't know how much it would mean. You're great. That's uh, true. Yeah, let's do it. Because if you true. don't, I will find a way to have a near-death experience. And we don't want me messing around with that. (laughs) Just going to walk in front of cars and try and meet Harlan Ellison. (laughs) Far as the rest of the intro goes, the other bit that jumped out to me as he talks about WNYC and public radio in general being a form of humanism and an expression of humanist belief and uh, taking care of each other just because it's the right thing to do. And I thought that was like a nicely put thing, especially with public radio being defunded so much everywhere. It's nice to like read celebrations of it. It's a good thing. Although I can Consider it a light plot hole that he's saying all this in retrospect, meaning he's still a secular humanist at the point he's writing this book. In a chapter where he explicitly says he's <laughs> in heaven talking to St. Peter. I'm like, right. I also am not, I'm fairly secular. But if I had a near-death experience, saw St. Peter at the pearly gates, I would be like, all hail Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. <laughs> I apologize for my transgressions. You are my one and future king. The power of rings is yours. Whatever you're supposed to say. Yeah, right. Um, Just like, I'm in. Like, I yeah. sign up. You guys love, were right. I love that he's <laughs> talking to St. Peter from the Bible, and he's like, yeah, I never bought into all this religion stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very Indiana Jones, where like, Indiana Jones is still a skeptic of all these things, yeah, even yeah. though he's met God. And, and, like... You've seen aliens, <laughs> ghosts that are immortal. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, keeping a level head. <laughs> <laughs> the jury's still out. Yeah. No, it's not. You we'll let them. the people of Alabama decide if those were aliens. <laughs> <laughs> you in the future know if that election went okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you. Or I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I think from there we can get into the uh, the interviews themselves. Like Michael said, each one has kind of one lesson to it. Also, each one is primarily with one person. And then the way they flow is Vonnegut says that he just got back and he met with this person like somewhere in that yard near the gates of heaven. And also often St. Peter is involved commenting. And that's sort of the structure of it. And first person he talks to is Dr. Mary Ainsworth. And she's a researcher who studied how much babies need nurturing and what it does for them as children and uh, he talks to her and finds out from being in heaven that all of her research was right and babies need early mothering or otherwise they miss it forever and then Vonnegut muses about his own situation with his mother which we've talked about a lot with various books and then uh, he says that when dead babies arrive in heaven there is a team of already deceased mothers there to mother the heck out of them and then the babies get to be angels that's how where angels come from Yeah. yeah 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 Guess. <laughs> no fathers, only mothers. Getting too gendered for me. <laughs> we're hoping to have uh, give you guys a sense of what these were as radio shows. So uh, let's go to the radio version of this first interview. And then uh, right after it, we'll talk about it. A oh, bit. cool. This is Kurt Vonnegut, WNYC's reporter on the afterlife. On my near-death experience this morning... I found out what becomes of people who die while they're still babies. 
Finding that out was accidental since I'd gone down the blue tunnel to interview Dr. Mary D. Ainsworth, who died last March 21st, age 85, in Charlottesville, Virginia. She was a retired but active to the end developmental psychologist. Dr. Mary Ainsworth's extravagantly favorable obituary in the New York Times said she had done more research than anyone on the long-term effects of bonding between a mother and an infant during the first year of life, or, alternatively, the absent-mindedness or lack thereof. She studied motherless babies in London, all kinds of mothering or lack of it in Uganda, and then here in the USA. She concluded with impressive scientific proofs that infants need a secure attachment to a mother figure at the beginning of life if they are going to thrive. Otherwise, they will be forever anxious. I wanted to talk some to her about nature versus nurture and also about the mothering I myself had received when a neonate, whether that might not go a long way toward explaining me. But Dr. Ainsworth was bubbling over with excitement over how her theories were confirmed in heaven. Never mind all the honors she'd received from fellow psychologists on earth, it turns out that there are nurseries and nursery schools and kindergartens in heaven for people who died when they were still babies. Volunteer surrogate mothers, or sometimes the baby's actual mothers if they're dead, bond like crazy with the little souls. Cuddle, 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 kiss, kiss, kiss. Don't cry, little baby. Your mommy loves you. Bet you have to burp. I'll bet that's the trouble there. Feel better? Time to go seepy by. Goo, goo, goo. And the babies grow up to be angels. That's where angels come from. This is Kurt Vonnegut signing off in the Lethal Injection Facility in Huntsville, Texas. Until the next time, goo, 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 and ta-ta. <laughs> I'm so happy he didn't go the T.S. Eliot route and change his voice. Like, I love how if you ever like hear... Do a funny performance of it or something? No, like, if you ever hear it, because T.S. Eliot is from the same place. He's from... Oh, uh, Missouri, I think, in, yeah. Okay. Well, he's from the Midwest, yeah. which Vonnegut makes a point of saying, and yet, uh, and their, a lot, or their lives overlapped. And when T.S. Eliot reads, well, if you ever hear a recording of like him reading the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock... He has adopted like a very highfalutin <laughs> British way of reciting his poetry. Oh, fascinating. Like the Earl of Canterbury. And it like is such a, it ruins, I think, beautiful <laughs> poems sound terrible when you hear. Whereas that right. was great. I hadn't, I was dumbly didn't look up any of the audio versions. And man, it adds so much to hear it in his own voice. It's really nice. Yeah, and, and I we're just playing that from WNYC's website where they have a lot of these archives. They don't have all of them. They say that they didn't have an archive system like they do when this happened, so they only saved some. Uh, but it's, yeah, if, if you listen to him in an interview or something, it's the same voice. It's how he speaks. It's how yeah. he talks. And he's doing it very straightforwardly while also, I, I just like hearing a, a distinguished author saying, cuddle, 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 kiss, kiss, kiss. Well, like, yeah, when he says seepy bye, <laughs> it's fun to hear him forced to say his own bullshit. Yeah. Like, like here comes the part that says, goo, 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 baby needs a burp. Is he really going to say it? Oh, yeah. he did. <laughs>
And they were and they were this simple and short and and mixed into an overall day of public radio. I think that was probably really fun as a mm. listener. It was a cool experience. His next interview was with Salvatore Biagini, who uh, was a local person who died of wounds from saving his dog from a more vicious dog. And I think the nugget with that one is um, that Vonnegut asks him, a lot of the, the, the nuggets of it come from Vonnegut directly asking the dead person a question. And he asks Biagini how Biagini felt about dying for a dog. And Biagini said it beat dying for nothing in Vietnam. Boom, Vietnam. So it was just a Vietnam burn, yeah. <laughs> in 1999, when people are like, yeah, we know, we've resolved that. Several Rambo movies have already come out yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> right, we won it in the Rambo movies. Exactly. We're fine. We all remember how it's we good. won Vietnam, and it's fine. <laughs> and uh, and I don't mean to be reductive about these, but they, they play like poems or, or little sketches. Oh, there's, or, not, yeah, like there's nothing more to say. The whole, the whole deal. <laughs> yeah. Salvatore Biagini. <laughs> Uh, next one is Burnham Burnham, the one yeah. welcoming Burnham Burnham. And uh, another cameo, we get Louis Armstrong, a.k.a. Satchmo. Yeah. Um, basically, when someone dies who is a, like a super saint on earth, uh, you are your reward is you're welcomed with like a marching band led by Louis Armstrong. Right. And only, apparently only one in 10 million people get it. So obviously this is set up for Vonnegut to explain why Burnham Burnham's so great. Yeah. And Burnham Burnham was an Aborigine who fought for Aboriginal rights in Australia, fought back against that genocide. He makes the point that uh, only the people of Tasmania have ever experienced a wholly successful genocide, like they're extinct now. And Burnham Burnham like became the first lawyer, first Aboriginal person to become a lawyer, uh, and was basically just a civil rights leader for his people. So he gets... The parade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's particularly nice getting to read them all at once because throughout these, Vonnegut keeps building that rules of heaven and stuff in heaven things like, oh, yeah. now I know there's the building block of fun New Orleans marching bands for the great people. Yeah. Playing When the Saints Go Marching In. When the Saints in. Go Marching In, of yeah. course. The next interview is with John Brown, the famous you. historical figure. John Brown was the famous uh, militant abolitionist of the immediately pre-American Civil, Civil War era who uh, led the raid on Harper's Ferry and was executed. And If our education systems failed you, Harper's Ferry was a place they had some guns. He stole some guns and he distributed them to the rebelling slaves. And they tried to be free and they got quashed and he was hanged. And then Vonnegut talked talks to him about many things. Um, one of them is John Brown argues that Thomas Jefferson was able to encapsulate God with the concept of all men are created equal, but also argues that Jefferson was an evil man because he was a slaveholder and he, he acted in a way that didn't fit the virtues he espoused. And he says the fact that he allowed both to be true, like the fact that he would enshrine that yeah. great sentence while living such a hollow hypocrisy kind of ruined it from the beginning. <laughs> like yeah. if you're going to say all men are created equal, but you're not immediately abiding by it at all. And and for decades and many, many, you know, generations to come, it totally cheapens and makes it hard to stand behind. So he's like at the same time saying that's the best ideal that we should shoot for. And we're not doing it. And even when he wrote it, he didn't mean it. But it's a good ideal. We really should mean <laughs> it. We should try to do what he said, not what he did. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I just watched the King of the Hill episode with Chris Rock guesting where he's a stand-up comedian. Did you, any, oh, I haven't seen like, much King of the Hill. Yeah. Oh, and they're going to fire great. him. And he's like, this is unjust. All men are created equal. Thomas Jefferson's rolling around in his grave right now, and that slave lady's on top. And I was like, damn, that's ballsy for King of the Hill. 
Yeah, geez. Yeah, well, they well really played. brought it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he also says what John Brown's last words were because he loves obituaries, tombstones, and last words. Um, and he says in five words he was able to just totally call out the complete, utter hypocrisy of the country he, as he was being dragged away to be hanged for fighting to be treated equally as the country promised in writing that he could be. Yeah, uh, they or said, for everyone to be. Right. Yeah, they yeah. said, do you have any last words? And he said, this is a beautiful country. And they hung him. Yeah. <laughs> so he just went the guilt trip route. Like, <laughs> right. You look, you look me in the eye, you motherfuckers. I think it's, <laughs> it's a good story. Yeah, it's also, he's a guy that, if I remember right, uh, uh, John Brown hasn't come up as a thing in any previous Vonnegut works. And I'm a little bit surprised just because he wanted to create a, a militant, bloody fashion of ending slavery. Yeah. But he, like, Vonnegut has those lines about wishing the angels were organized along the lines of the mafia. Like, like yeah. I, I feel like he'd be a, a Debs-type figure for Vonnegut yeah. where he keeps coming up. Although Trump did recently tweet he's going to get John Brown's take on the whole uh, Frederick Douglass situation, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Have Dred Scott weigh yeah. in. <laughs> then kick it up to Lincoln. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Next person up, and well, actually, I, I did a bit of Googling about it. Her name is Roberta Gorsuch Burke. As far as I can tell, she is no relation to the new Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> Uh, she was a the wife of a an important admiral in the U.S. Navy and sort of a maternal figure to the overall Navy, like the whole branch of the military. And her husband in particular pioneered the nuclear Navy. Like he yeah. presided over the invention of subs that could shoot nukes and aircraft carriers that could launch bombers, stuff like that. And this vignette, I, I felt it was just very complimentary of her. It was like a cool stories about her being a good lady and Bill Clinton uh, complimenting her at her husband's funeral. Yeah, and about how... How uh, she never cheated on him, and even in heaven, <laughs> she's, she's like, I don't know why I fool around. The anecdote, that, I just think it's ironic. President Clinton told her at her husband's funeral when she still had a year left to live, you've blessed America with your service and set an example, not only for Navy wives today and to come, but for all Americans. Yeah. Then he went back to his office and got a blowjob from an intern. <laughs> well, it, well, that last bit, it isn't in the thing. And I was I trying to figure out if... Did he even really say it or is Vonnegut just making up a story? Do, does Vonnegut call out Clinton's infidelity? No, no, yeah. no, I yeah, am. Yeah. But I'm right. saying Vonnegut just says that Clinton said this to her at the funeral. And I have no way of knowing if that's true. For, I was trying to figure out with the book, like, if Vonnegut was slyly digging at Clinton because I but I can't I don't know if the timeline fits or not with the biggest if he knew yet obviously there were other things before but there were yeah but it's funny it's just funny it could have been satirical for Clinton to be like your monogamy has saved the country (laughs) (laughs) ma'am and then next interview from sorry I just oh no sure did we call this section Vaughn interviews or what yeah Vanna interviews (sighs) we should have called them Vaughnettes oh no oh no (laughs) <laughs> this is a segment renaming called Vonnettes. Oh, Von we're closing Yets. the iris, but only Von a little. Yets. It's getting dark. Vonnettes. <laughs> we, we were on very different vibes there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Well, that was a sub segment. They don't. It takes a while for them, the themes to build steam. Oh, you know? of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fifth time we do Vonnettes, it'll be amazing. <laughs> Next Vonnette is with Clarence Darrow. Uh, the very famous real-life lawyer of the past. And um, they touch on what I didn't remember being an issue at the time, but I guess it was uh, the issue of cameras being in courtrooms, whether you can see what's happening in a trial. Darrow approves of it, 
and says that it, he approves of it because justice is bullshit. And it's something that governments use to justify their own bullshit. And he thought it was already basically just a TV show, so you may as well film it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's a very dark fun yet. Very cynical. What. And I don't know that... I don't know if Vonnegut knows if Clarence Darrow really was that cynical. It's almost, it's funny to like, Yeah. it's like if I were like, you know, Lincoln hated abortion. And it's like, <laughs> there's no way to know that. You just want me to agree with you. So you're invoking the name of a very wise person or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, if Clarence Darrow said that after he was dead, it must be true. Yeah. <laughs> well, And as they speak to each other, Vonnegut compliments Darrow on fighting for a lot of just and kind causes throughout his yeah. life. He was... Uh, it was in the Scopes Monkey Trial, right? Yeah, he was in the Scopes Monkey Trial, and he also was involved in a lot of like teenage murders and uh, gen- and generally trying to fight for civil liberty. He was involved in a lot of teenage murders. Yeah, that, that was that was interestingly phrased, Al. Uh, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> He did not kill children. Uh, but yeah, he he generally fought on the side of civil liberties uh, throughout his career. Civ libs. Yeah. And obviously that speaks to, to Vonnegut's heart. I also felt like in this Vonnegut, he is kind of, like you said, with... We don't actually know how Clarence Darrow would feel about like late nineteenth or late 1990s uh, tech, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think he was kind of... Taking Darrow, who was a civil libertarian and, and probably more of an optimist in life, and like stamping Vonnegut's own view on him. Like, oh, yeah. we're both late in life, so we're both cynical and you're cynical. Great. And I'm not Here saying I disagree with Vonnegut's point. I'm just saying it's Vonnegut's point. It's not really Clarence Darrow's point. Yeah. Even though the Clarence Darrow angel says it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it segues very nicely to the next one because it's another uh, champion of the people's rights. Yeah. And similarly, the only real takeaway is him being super disappointed and cynically not surprised. <laughs> it's our old boy Eugene Victor Debs. Uh, yeah. As long as there is a criminal element, I am of it. As long as there is a soul in prison, I'm not free. That guy. Yeah. And uh, he basically is like, hey, Eugene asks Vonnegut. Like, he checks in on how are civil rights going? How's this going? How's that going? All the things I fought for. Vonnegut flatly tells him what the current situation is, and he's like, that's not very good. And he flies away <laughs> on his angel wings. He's like, damn. Yeah. You guys still not doing very good? Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love the way Vonnegut writes that the progression of it too like it, it just plays very nicely like the exchange happens and then suddenly with a line he flies away so the and then he yeah spread his wings and flew away yeah. it's kind of like the opening monologue from breakfast of champions because what it boils down to is yeah. vonnegut just describing as an alien would see it like how a system works and you're like that is awful <laughs> <laughs> And uh, from there, the next vignette is with someone named Harold Epstein, who is a guy. Did you verify he was real? How could you possibly verify that? I didn't. I okay. didn't look at that. Right. I, I just figured he wasn't made up. Because he's a non-famous <laughs> dead guy yeah. named with a name that I'm sure thousands of people have had. It's not that right. common. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty common. <laughs> um, well, uh, he and his wife Esta, really interesting name. Um, they got way, way into what they call garden insanity, which is they're just way into gardening, and they found a bunch of society for gardening and Vonnegut asks him uh, how he's doing and he basically says he wishes everyone could be as happy as he'd been 
being garden insane and just planting a heck mm. of a lot of plants. Yeah. Right. The wisest person I know, my godfather, the advice he's repeated to me most often about life is grow your own tomatoes. So I guess gardening is the key to happiness. I didn't realize. I haven't tried it, so I can't verify. Well, that that reminds me of Candide. Like, we must cultivate our garden. I think that's what he means. I, it's got cool. it, I assume it boils down to a combination of find something you're interested in that is nurturing that takes you out of yourself. Yeah. Be mindful and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I guess gardening's good for that. Let's do the next vignette. Mm-hmm. This is with Vivian Hallinan, who uh, was a real person. She was a socialist. She was the wife of um, the progressive party candidate for president in 1952, who was also a socialist. They had a bunch of socialist sons. And Vonnegut talks about her obituary calling her colorful, and he decides that that's New York Times speak for they were a wealthy and wonderful and beautiful person who also happened to be socialist and uh, didn't fit in with the other wealthy people because of that. Because she had all the money, but she still was saying things like, we shouldn't have all this money. This is bullshit. So, of course, Vonnegut loved her because he was a rich person who felt mixed about how money is distributed. Yeah. and actually, oh, he, he never became. Yeah. he never even became like in like obscenely wealthy. He was yeah, he was just I, fine. <laughs> because like like vaguely tracking his finances across life, it seems like he uh, his family had wealth early on and lost it, and then he gained some wealth along the way, but ended up spending a lot of it on his family, and then yeah. also only got wealthy-ish like later. Right, in life. but and I would don't, also give money to friends. Often. I don't imagine he's like a George Soros or a Koch brothers. I imagine he's no, like yeah. lower upper class or upper middle class, probably. Yeah, ra- around yeah. there. Yeah. Um, what were yeah. we talking about before Vonnegut's bank account? <laughs> <laughs> uh, How much you the, make, Kurt? <laughs> <laughs> like you said, Vonnegut says explicitly, like, "Oh no, I've fallen in love." On this trip, oh yeah, he like, fell in love. I with love her. this That's woman, where we were and she's dead. Oh no! And yeah. uh, he also does one anecdote about FDR. Vonnegut asks her, "Hey, the New York Times called you colorful in your obituary. How do you feel about that?" And Vivi- Vivian Hallinan says that she would rather have been called what FDR was called by his enemies, which is a traitor to his class, because it speaks to it would speak to her being a person who cares about other people. That's where she wanted her impact to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Next. Our old pal, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't able to verify if he's real. Can't be. Um, right. But I tried. No. <laughs> it depends on which website you go to. It really does. Um, there's a lot of denial, Adolf Hitler denial yeah. websites out there that claim he just never existed. That's a weird conspiracy niche I don't think actually has many followers. Yeah, I don't think that's There never a was a Hitler, right. good there's or no... bad. None of this ever happened. <laughs> There's no full-on Hitler deniers. Yeah. Yeah. There's no moon. Well, what do you think about the Earth shape? The what? There's no Earth. You idiot. But yeah, uh, of course, if you could die, you're going to interview Adolf Hitler, the most recent uh, icon of evil we have at our disposal. Yeah. And uh, the only takeaway, did you get more of a takeaway than he regrets it all? Because that's, I feel like uh, the takeaway is pretty straightforward, which is like, if Adolf Hitler could have the pain relief from his mind and live, he'd obviously feel bad and wouldn't have done all that shit. <laughs> obviously. That's a no-brainer, man. Yeah. <laughs> but he basically just meets Adolf Hitler in heaven, and Adolf Hitler's like, yeah, just, that was really bad. I'm sorry. Like you say, it's, it's a vignette about Vanyat, about how we feel guilty about ourselves. Yeah. And, and, since, and, yeah. and, and Hitler says that, 
oh, I wish I could just have a little grave marker at the UN where it's my lifespan and the words Entschuldigen Sie. And that just means I beg your pardon in German. That's it. Like, like, oops. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think he meant that as poignant, but I'm still, I'm like, that's like if Louis C.K. had just said, I beg your pardon. I mean, his apology still wasn't great, but like, I beg your pardon's not enough. Adolf Hitler, you got to say more yeah. than I beg your pardon. Oh, yeah. I don't think he's like finding Hitler a path to redemption. I think he's kind of slamming Hitler. No, I, I and, agree. And other people who feel guilt but don't like do anything about it. I think you know? he just maintains that he does believe it's true that if Hitler could somehow be in heaven, he wouldn't be Hitler anymore, which I, oh. which I agree with. Yeah, pr- probably worth mentioning with the cosmology, I don't think there's a hell in this. Yeah, like, that's, he establishes there's no hell at all. In case yeah. you're wondering how low Vonnegut's standards are, we didn't <laughs> mention there is no hell because he believes the like the unit of God is truly loving, so there's only heaven. Yeah. Otherwise, obviously Hitler wouldn't make the cut. <laughs> Vonnegut's not insane. Right. <laughs> I think he just didn't want to be like, and then Jack Kravorkian sent me to hell and have to explain like how he survived hellfire and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because then Vonnegut would have to pass judgment on everybody. That's, and he oh, doesn't yeah. want to do that. And sort yeah. the whole book into who goes to heaven and hell. Yeah. 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 Whole pain. This, this isn't Real pain. Dante the Saint, you know? Mm-hmm. Next uh, next Magnette is he talks to John Wesley Joyce. John Wesley Joyce was a person who owned a bar called the Lion's Head Bar in Greenwich Village. Vonnegut describes it as for drinkers with writing problems. Uh, because it's where all the uh, heavily drinking writers in the city would hang out. And it's all. Uh, he also talks a bit about how Joyce never intended it to be a writer hangout and uh, tried to kick him out with a jukebox, but they just talked over it. And it's sort of a... And when he couldn't get them to leave, he wrote Ulysses and tried to get them to read it, <laughs> and they all quietly filed out. It is, Nerd joke! It's so. It, I was so distracted by his last name yeah, being a famous writer totally. name. It's like if it was owned by like Bill Hemingway. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Matt Twain, you know? It's, Ernest Camp. That kind of thing. <laughs> See, and it's, I don't know, I just took it as sort of a little story about the writer community in New York. I took it yeah. as an excuse to toss off that amazing line. It was for drinkers with writing problems. That yeah. was my main takeaway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next, he interviews Francis Keene, who I'm going to assume is real because Alex probably confirmed that. Seems to be. She is a romances language expert, so an expert in the love languages, French. I will. Spanish. I will admit, by around this point, in it, I stopped verifying people. I just Italiano. took it that they're all real. <laughs> the, the romance. Um, and he points out uh, he seems to be obsessed with how people will be viewed by their obituaries, which is fitting because if you haven't seen the obituary he got on Fox News, they fucking <laughs> threw him right under the bus. Yeah, I never thought about how truly cruel that is because he loves obituaries. He foresaw somehow that obituaries are important to people. It's where people will fuck you over after you're dead. Yeah. Because this is a lady who he really admires who got a crap obituary. Yeah, um, if you're going to check out that Fox clip, steal yourself and don't be driving or anything. Like It's, it's rough. Yeah, if you like this true. show, it's not a pleasant watch. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting to watch only because I didn't. I understand what Fox News' ideology is. I didn't know that Kurt Vonnegut pissed them off that much. Like, I didn't know they hated him that much, particularly. Yeah. And I think it boils down to the writer who wrote that op-ed, actually, personally, just really disliked Vonnegut after some digging. In the process of this and in in feedback from people, I've vaguely learned that in the way I think Ayn Rand is the writer of hardcore conservative crazy people, uh, it seems like some of those people think Vonnegut is the polar opposite in some way, politically. 
And I think Which that's kind of true, but nobody's like politically organizing around him. And Ayn Rand has essays with a minimal story overlaying them. Vonnegut like writes novels. Right. It's weird to He's me because artist. the focus is so much on plot and fiction and purely entertaining you yeah. that the fact that he has a political ideology doesn't seem like it's like the fourth thing that you notice. Right. <laughs> First, right. you notice all the crazy aliens and the fire <laughs> bombings of Dresden and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like his stories are flat. Like there's yeah. a bunch of stuff going on. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Francis Keene, he says, I'm sorry about your crappy obituary, you're great. And of course, as he's he's shown great respect for translators in the past, he thinks having yeah. a mastery of languages is a beautiful thing. Yeah. So yeah. he just sort of waxes poetic about that. And then uh, next one is, I actually I found this one very funny. It's a mm-hmm. vignette where he talks to Isaac Newton. And I, Newton kind of goes and finds him because when Newton got to heaven, he immediately spent all of his time trying to like uh, figure out the science of heaven and also like regretted not being alive to discover everything else anybody's discovered and just like continued to be an obsessive science person. Like when he watched Einstein death. realize special relativity, he was like, I could have thought of that if like if I lived 50 more years, I would have yeah. thought of that. Yeah, He's yeah. like jealous of everything anyone's thought of. <laughs> and he refuses to go inside the pearly gates, not because he wants to return to life, which it's too late for him to do now, but because he's stationed himself at the entrance of the Blue Tunnel because he's undergoing a long-term experiment to figure out what the Blue Tunnel's made of. Yeah. And it's like, couldn't you just ask God at this point? (laughs) But I guess in a perfect heaven, if you want to be, you know, investigate, that's what you get to do. So whatever. Yeah, he's clearly happy. So his questions, Vonnegut is like, uh, Vonnegut's like, can I ask you something about being the greatest scientific mind of your age? And he's like, the tunnel. Is it wood? Is it metal? <laughs> Describe the texture of it as you walk through it. I must know about the tunnel. Uh, and That's I, great. Yeah. yeah. Reminded me of a great Futurama episode I know you haven't seen, so I won't ask. <laughs> where the central conflict, and this is so telling and dumb of me, but this made me cry the first time I watched it, and it's the most abstract central conflict. The central conflict is, it's a special episode where it's all in pixel art, and because of that, the professor is able to discover the fundamental building block of the universe, which is the single pixel, and that's taken (laughs) as, in this, just in this short, oh, that's the last thing, like, now that we know that, there's no more scientific discoveries to make, conclusively, and then someone asks, like, But why? Why are the laws of physics the way they are versus some other laws? Why does this universe exist versus not? And he realizes what brings him out of his despair is he says, oh, my God, you're right. The universe is an irreducibly complex mystery that no one can ever fully understand. Hooray! And that's the end of the episode. And I cried like my little nerdy heart out. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I just love the pure joy of discovery and the fact that really good scientists wouldn't want to reach the end. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And that was like, and that Futurama thing, it was a short thing? Was it like a Treehouse of Horror structure kind of episode? Yeah, the last three seasons, they would do an episode every season where they did a triptych with three different animation styles. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You're going to love it when you get around to it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that's a really good one. I also had made a note that I had to bring up my favorite Newton story, which proves how curious he really was, which is in the journals of the the time um, that he was the head of something at either Oxford or Cambridge. It's the position that Stephen Hawking currently fills. He would do all, you know, experiment all the time. He got to do whatever he wanted. And going through his journals, they found among hundreds of experiments that never got pursued to completion. A journal entry that just says, like, sticking a spoon in my eye to see what happens. Uh, Four centimeters in, great pain. Eight centimeters in, lots of, like, black spots and (laughs) tremendous pain. Nine (laughs) centimeters in, ceasing experiment. (laughs) So, like, this is literally a guy who'd be like, I don't know. 
What's it feel like if you jam a spoon in your eye? <laughs> some, some there. <laughs> oh, oh, that's my favorite. That's thing. how you discover things. <laughs> I wish there was audio of him being yeah. eight centimeters ah. in. It continues to hurt yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, next vignette is with Peter Pellegrino. Fun name. He was an important American balloonist who crossed the Alps in a balloon. Founder of the Balloon Federation of America. Yeah, yeah. And he uh, he's a person who, in heaven, insists that the real heaven is being in a balloon and getting to be ballooning. And St. Peter keeps breaking in in this one and being like, no, no, but this is literally heaven. You're here. And he's like, no, no, a balloon. Kurt, you should take a balloon. You should do that. Which apparently, I guess you're not allowed to go ballooning in heaven. Can't yeah. you go ballooning? <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's similar to the garden one, that if you find the thing that wakens your soul yes it's it's a good thing to find and you're good you're set yeah yeah uh yeah and they there are moments in life that are heavenly yeah. um but i like that the punchline at the end is he's like vonnegut asks him he's like you ever try crack and he's like ah, oh, bef- that's that was after my time and he's like well uh i hear it's pretty good and he's like yes that would probably be like heaven too <laughs> like he agrees doing cracks probably probably like, cool heavenly <laughs> <laughs> so the ultimate would be doing crack in a hot air balloon in heaven <laughs> that's my next album cover uh, I will buy it yeah reminds me of uh, all the Daily Show all the way back in the Craig Kilborn days he interviewed a DEA agent who was like yes I've done heroin and I thought it was admirable he's like because if I'm going to arrest people and put them in jail for life I really wanted to not be a hypocrite and know that it's so dangerous it, like it really could destroy a community and I'm not just being hypocritical uh. so he did heroin once under controlled circumstances with his family and Craig Kilborn's like well, everyone, you know, how was it? That's the only question everyone wants to know. And he's like, it's like every cell of your body orgasming for eight hours. All I could think about was doing more heroin. That's how I knew, like, this is not okay to oh. be just in the hands of people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And it really made me want to do heroin. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> the next one, yeah, it kind of ties to Pellegrino, I think, because he's in heaven but wishes it was ballooning and then the next vignette is with James Earl Ray the real person who shot Martin Luther King Jr. He has gotten to heaven and is demanding a prison cell because he's only comfortable in a prison cell. That's like what he needs to be uh, to feel comfy. But what's weird is it's only because he got used to prison because he spent so much time in the cell. It kind of sets you up to think oh it's going to be Hitler one where he regrets it but he doesn't regret it. Yeah and it's also well he he does he kind of regrets it. He is still happy he killed MLK, and then he's furious that by killing MLK, he made MLK's message live on forever. Like, he sure. he made him a martyr in a way that promoted the message, and he was like, ah, I'm such an idiot, and is and he's very horribly describing King and, and being a I monster. Mean, yeah, from Christ to Cobain, it's a good way to stick around, is be tragically killed by someone. Yeah, yeah. Looking at you, Courtney Love. <laughs> Killer of Jesus Christ. No, wait. Mixing my nope. conspiracy theories here. Nope. And then the next one yet is with a guy named William Shakespeare. Again, couldn't verify if he's uh-huh. real or not. <laughs> waka waka authorship. Anyway, yeah. Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, I get it. Also, uh, this one, yeah, was funny to me because Vonnegut says the whole interview went very badly. They really, really didn't hit it off and didn't get along and had a weird time together. And Shakespeare didn't like how Vonnegut talks or his voice. It bugged him. Um, and then Vonnegut tries to find something to say and compliments Shakespeare on the movie Shakespeare in Love winning a bunch of Oscars. 
Brothers, which is yep. really funny to me. Written by Tom Stoppard, who famously wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, as well as The Bourne Supremacy. Oh, crazy really? spread! I didn't Tom know he did Stoppard's that. done a lot of interesting work. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, and Vonnegut asks about the authorship question. Shakespeare says, "Ask St. Peter." Asks uh, Shakespeare if Shakespeare was bisexual. Shakespeare delivers uh, his uh, poem that includes the line about innocence for innocence rather than directly answering. Well, that's how he answers all of them. So he doesn't just say, ask St. Peter. He says, did you write all the Shakespeare plays? And he says, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Because I think the important point is Shakespeare refuses to give Vonnegut any new information. He will only speak in quotes from his previous words. (laughs) I think to piss him off. Like he's saying, I won't even have a real conversation with you. I'll only say... Say things you already knew from my books. Yeah. So it's like, but were you bisexual? We were but two lambs who exchanged innocence for innocence. It's like, right, but okay. what gender were the lambs? <laughs> and yeah, and then Vonnegut is just just ends that interview and tries to ask St. Peter directly about a lot of these things. And St. Peter says, nobody has claimed to have authored Shakespeare's plays and taken St. Peter's lie detector test. So it's just still a mystery. <laughs> he has a lie detector you can agree to take, but also apparently you're allowed to keep secrets from God if you want in heaven. Yeah. You don't have to be revealed as a liar. <laughs> um, and the big takeaway, I think, is, as he says at the end, an enchanting answer to any question I might have asked the greatest writer who ever lived could be found in Breitbart's quotations, which is to say— Bartlett's, I think. I, it autocorrected <laughs> the Breitbart's because I write about Breitbart sometimes. That's funny. On my notes. Oh, if you have a copy of Breitbart's quotations, Burn throw it, it out. <laughs> yeah. Do not keep it around. As he said, <laughs> people who write great words thought a long time about the words, and they're probably not going to say anything better in an interview than they have made clear in on paper. Oh, yeah. And he says that yeah. about himself later. If you read all my books, you know what I think. I repeat myself frequently. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. I and I'm never going to coin it better than that. Yeah. Well, and even there's, uh, it's collected in Palm Sunday, but he did an interview with the Paris Review where he refused to deal with an interview. He just yeah. wrote out an interview with himself because, yeah, he, I think he feels that way about authors. And I think his point is we don't have to have any yearning about like who cares if Shakespeare wrote this who cares if he was bisexual the words exist now and are whatever they mean yeah and that's just there I also thought it was amazing that I I consider the Oscars one of the hollowest fakest most bullshit like just (laughs) let's all pretend things that there is it's just like an industry circle jerk and I love that even Shakespeare knows it (laughs) he briefly says but I mean you're in Shakespeare Love and it won Oscars and Oscars like the main award you don't care and he says fa the Oscars are but sound and fury signifying nothing <laughs> I just love that Shakespeare's bagging on the Oscars from heaven yeah. and it's I like, like that this comes out yeah, close-ish to the Oscars clearly Denzel should have won it for Philadelphia <laughs> <laughs> scent of a woman hath been a gimme after yeah, his best exactly. movies yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marissa Tomei refuseth the lie detector test <laughs> methinks she doth protest too much <laughs> I like this character. Yeah. Um, <laughs> really catty industry Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> There's only a couple of uh, vignettes left. Um, the I next love how one, much you've hugged that term to your bosom. Thank it's, you. Uh, you nailed it. I mean, it's so good. <laughs> um, and this next one, uh, Vonnegut says that he's never been a tease about who he interviewed, but this one, there's going to be like a few clues and it's a riddle and then you find out who. And the clues um, involve 
that uh, the person wrote a book when they were not quite 20 years old that's been a persistent thought in human minds ever since. And the other clues are about the author's parents. And the riddle answer is that it's Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein. Good answer. Yeah. And he does a, he does a lot of... Uh, it's mostly a tribute to her, and I really enjoy yeah. and agree with his thoughts on her and her book being so significant. And he loves her and her book, I think, and he said this before and not in so many words, because it was the first notable work that's so prescient about, man, ma- mankind does not know how to handle technology. It's really going to yeah. fuck us. Um, although, as we said, I'd argue there's like Prometheus myths and uh, right. Icarus flying, using technology to fly too close to the sun. Basically the exact same moral. But it was a good one and it stuck with us. Yeah. And even though I don't necessarily view technology quite as darkly as Vonnegut, it makes total sense why. Like the main tragedy or like traumas in his life outside of suicide, although one of his suicides he blames on pharmaceuticals, which is a form of advancing technology, included the firebombing of Dresden. So to firsthand just see an apocalypse happen because of a new kind of bomb that was just invented, of course, you're going to be like, the greatest evil is unchecked technology, Uh, which it may well be. And we could still die in nuclear hellfire. But I would just argue that technology really is neutral and it (laughs) is good when something's invented in large part most of the time. Yeah, right. It's, It's all tools and we're who we are, yeah. I do like that it ends with the most hackneyed thing you can say about this topic. You agree? All right, you say Oh, I, well, I actually, I, you liked I it? thought it was a good turn on the pedantic thing people say. But I yeah. just mean it boils down to, he says, you know, a lot of people say, call the doctor, call the monster Frankenstein my mistake, even though it's Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. And she says, well, they're not wrong. They're both monsters. And cool. I... Is it, though? Because let me rephrase that, and you tell me if it's still cool. <laughs> Who's the real monster? Oh, that's not cool. I'm just yeah. like, it's yeah. the same. It's it's only a few words different from the hackiest line ever said. Yeah, that's true. I guess I, I just find, like, the other thing about, oh, actually, the monster is not It's a good way to into it. It's, yeah. like, more pedantic and dumb than the the other thing i don't yeah. know it's 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 alien versus predator you know like, i just <laughs> i'm just saying the eugene v debs segment i think would have lost some of its punch if at the end he went my god what have we done and then flew away <laughs> silence was better <laughs> yeah kill them kill them all <laughs> nuke it from orbit i've got a bad feeling about this i'm eugene v Debs. <laughs> uh, the next one yet is with dr philip strax i did google him he's real he uh, was a mammogram pioneer he used radiology to check for breast cancer and, and was also a new feminist techniques. poet i'm sorry to interrupt invented new techniques that allowed them to find use radiology to find yeah. tumors within breast material which they couldn't before yeah which is amazing <laughs> and uh he's also a feminist poet and then as as Vonnegut talks to him, he also connects Strax to the baseball player Joe DiMaggio a lot because they died on the same day and kind of uses baseball stats to describe the stats of how many people Strax saved. And I think that's twofold. One, it's his Bluebeard nod or it's his feminism nod. This is one yeah. where he's saying, uh, you know, go women. <laughs> I'm pro <laughs> women and I think it's their turn to rule the world. Yeah. And also, I think by comparing DiMaggio, who's huge at the time, to uh, this guy, he's also saying, look who we becomes the most famous hero and they just hit a ball or run around. You've never heard of Philip Strax. He should be a bigger hero. Yeah. Which is, you know, true. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's yeah, that guy. All uh, over culture. We featured on the Crack Podcast once who, like, is credited with saving more lives than anyone else. Oh, Norman Borlaug? Borlaug, yeah. Yeah, who, who experimented with seeds, I think, for the most part, and created crops that are the stronger and tougher. The reason there's grocery stores. Like, we wouldn't have <laughs> enough food to stock the grocery store yeah. in almost anywhere except for Norman Borlaug. But it took me a minute to remember his name because he's so not famous. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. And if caring <laughs> caring about random athletes is a FOMA that makes your life easier, great. Fine. Like it's yeah, why, yeah, yeah. Like, that's what sports is for. It's oh, a I good get, FOMA. I get so happy about how happy Nick Mundy gets about his sports team winning. Oh, yeah. I yeah. would never take that away from him, yeah. even though I find it pointless. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, next vignette is with Carla Faye Tucker, um, who was a murderer executed by Texas. It's also the one where uh, what happens is Vonnegut is in this facility in Huntsville, Texas, where in other rooms, actual full-on executions are taking place. And so he crosses paths with her in the facility and then crosses paths with her in the tunnel as Vonnegut is temporarily going into the afterlife and she's fully going there. Yeah. He catches up to her because she's walking slowly because he assumes because she's worried she's going to hell. And he tells her, no, you're good. You're good. At the end of the tunnel's heaven, everyone goes to heaven. Twist! Punchline! <laughs> she's disappointed because she says she, it would be worth going to hell if it meant the governor of Texas who had her executed would also go to hell because he's a murderer too. It's a v- pretty cut and dried anti-capital punishment piece. Yep. Very straightforward. Um, very straightforward, <laughs> especially given the fact that he, when he wakes up, he's like, I have to cut this interview short because they're bringing in another prisoner to execute. So just about the assembly line of executing criminals that especially is poignant, I think, in Texas, the state that executes the most readily, the most people, and the widest number of people. They'll execute the youngest person. They'll execute mentally handicapped people. Texas just loves their executions. They'll mess with Texas. <laughs> Used to be about littering. Now it's about they'll murder you. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Was Don't Mess With Texas an anti-littering It was an thing? anti-littering campaign. I had no idea. Don't Mess With Texas just means please don't throw your cigarette butts out your car window. Oh, I like it so much more now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> don't mean that now. Well, and, uh, and Now things... Don't Mess With Texas means you from Austin, boy. We don't want you around these parts. <laughs> <laughs> from there, these vignettes start to be things like that where more and more of the world in Texas and the living world breaks in. Right. The well, there's vignette... only two left and at the end he'll get kicked out because Kravorkian's arrested. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, the next one, Vonnegut says that Kavorkian is facing legal troubles of murder one in the state of Michigan. And so to fill time on WNYC, Kurt will interview the living person, Kilgore Trout. Oh my God, Kilgore Trout. Here we go. Who I thought was dead. We saw him go through the blue tunnel in the last novel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I guess... He's back again. And I think the fictional person the in this. The Trout came and, uh, back. <laughs> <laughs> and he ma- almost exclusively talks to Trout about Kosovo, because that was another thing going on here that was a part of um, the Balkans where uh, NATO had invaded to try to prevent a genocide. Trout wishes that NATO had left more stuff standing and describes wars being a form of TV entertainment. And so they didn't need to blow everything up, he feels. He's a Washingtonian non-interventionist. Uh, yeah, he yeah. Believes He's upset that we try to police the world and he thinks, he says explicitly, the only thing to do with ethnic cleansing is wait for sanity to return and then rescue the survivors. Because going in and bombing everything just destroys the cities and the cities are works of art that took thousands of years to build. I have to say I strongly disagree. Um, I I think I do too. Which people could probably guess from my political leanings. But I do think America should not be world cop. It gets way too up in other people's business. But... Ethnic cleansing is a particular extreme. Yeah. That's the one time where I think it is on the table that there might be a moral imperative to reach across the globe and try to help. I understand we fuck shit up when we try to help. That's why I would say anything short of that, fine. Okay, yes. But full-on genocide, I don't know if you can just wait it out. I don't know if that's okay. Right, right. And, and I'd say from what I remember of that time in the world, that was 
what you're saying was the prevailing opinion in the country too. Most Which of the country was, was like, we can't just wait. And yeah, watch this it was happen. like what what the what the, the government's doing is right. It's good that we're going in there as like a UN peacekeeping thing to stop this genocide as much as we can. I think Vonnegut's giving the other side, which is not without merit. Yeah. that you know, while we're there, we're gonna bomb all this priceless shit. We're gonna poison some of the land, and we'll probably not understand their government well enough and fuck a bunch of shit up. Then we'll leave, and maybe we will have killed the top of the evil dudes, but there will be a bunch of chaos from the fact that we were there. True. I don't know without being omniscient how you could tell which is worse. Us coming in and fucking shit up. Genocide just going unchecked. I don't know (laughs) which is worse. It's not great. Yeah. And then from there, the last Vonnegut. Vonnegut says he came back from interviewing Isaac Asimov in the afterlife. That's my boy. Woo! To find that Kevorkian's been hustled off on murder charges and will not be able to help him report anymore because he's uh, being imprisoned. So Asimov is the climax. Yeah. As the Foundation yeah, yeah. series always knew he would be. <laughs> As Harry Seldon said. Exactly. Yeah. My nerd joke's off the chain this episode. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> um, Vonnegut celebrates Asimov's prolific writing and uh, finds that Asimov is still writing in heaven uh, because to Asimov, it's sort of like uh, Newton. Any place he can write is heaven. Anywhere right. he can't is hell. And I, But I think he does do the same thing he did to Clarence Darrow where he puts some words in his mouth that I'm like, I know they knew each other in life, but he says, Isaac Asimov agrees with me that the reason he wrote so much is to escape because hell is other people. Yeah. And, and it was the only place he felt safe. And I'm like, that could be true. I'm sure that's the reason a lot of people write. I've seen Ray Bradbury speak a, f- a few times and he always credited his love of writing only to positivity, like to an act of joy in writing. But he also said he loved people. He was very gregarious. He loved his family. Whereas yeah. Vonnegut's like, I write to escape the unbearableness of... And I'm like, you don't know where Isaac fell on that spectrum. Or maybe you do because you know him personally. I don't know. From what I've read about Asimov, I think he leans toward the Bradbury side. I yeah. That's what I was thinking because I've yeah. read some Asimov letters and he seems pretty immune to depression. Like, I don't yeah. think he was that cynical. He's a pretty cheerful dude. And that pretty much wraps up this book. Mine just then has a list of the people he talks to. Uh, yeah, that's, that's all I got. And from there, let's uh, look back on these a bit with a segment called Kurt Blurt. And this trying to keep it fresh, man. This book here, I I don't have a ton of blurts just because it's very short, but it's pretty rich. What's there? Like, there's some good lines. Oh, I have a ton. Oh, great. <laughs> there you go. I uh, it's mostly and it's mostly lines that he gives to people. Yeah, they're um, all my lines are all from other people, and some yeah. of them are quotes that aren't Vonnegut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One that's hard to describe, but we mentioned it before. When he's talking to Eugene Debs, I love how that uh, just that whole vignette is written, especially the very last line being just, and then he spread his wings and flew away. Yeah. Like he just suddenly has wings in your Uh-oh. head. It hasn't been mentioned before. We might have the same recommended reading this time. Do you have a recommended reading based on that? Uh, no, I don't think okay, so. Okay, good, 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 good. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I like he quotes his, one of his forebears, Clemens Vonnegut, named at, or I don't know if he was named after, but I think it's fitting that Mark Twain, his real name, Samuel Langhorne Clemens. I think it's actually it a coincidence. Is after. It's a coincidence. Yeah. Okay. And he's descended from a Clemens Vonnegut. And just Vonnegut is Twain to me. That's my Lincoln Kennedy conspiracy. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> But uh, his forebear, Clemens Vonnegut, said, if what Jesus said was good, what can it matter whether he was a god or not? Um, And he also says, if it weren't for the message of mercy and pity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Earlier he said alligator. I like rattlesnake. (laughs) Ah, that's such a good line. Uh, This is a a Darrow line about cameras in courtrooms. Clarence Darrow, he says, the presence of those cameras finally acknowledges that justice systems anywhere, anytime, have never cared whether justice 
justice was achieved or not. Like Roman games, justice systems are ways for unjust governments, and there is no other sort of government, to be enormously entertaining with real lives at stake. It's a little lengthy, but I like it. It's well and later he says, I did my best to entertain. Yep, I had that one, so that can go bye-bye. Um, so on the same theme, he says about WNYC, why he's doing this, in contrast, WNYC satisfies the people's right to know, as contrasted with, as abject slaves of high-roller publicists and advertisers, keeping the public vacantly diverted but entertained. (laughs) Another, uh, a lot of the good lines in this are just celebrating cool things. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is him, uh, one of his hints about Mary Shelley before he reveals who it's her. This former Earthling, although not quite 20, published an idea as persistent in the minds of thinking people today as Pasteur's germ theory, say, or Darwin's theory of evolution, or Malthus's dread of overpopulation. Nice. Yeah, it's on that scale. It's great. As soon as he was old enough, he went up in the sky at the controls of all sorts of airplanes, from World War I jennies to commercial transports. But I felt like an invader, he said, an alien up there, tearing up the sky with my propellers, dirtying it with my noise and exhaust. I didn't go up in a balloon until I was 35. That was when the dream came true. That was heaven, but I was still alive. I became the sky. I wonder if Kurt was ever actually in a balloon. He seemed to capture it. He describes it it like he was, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I just have two more. One of them is... Uh, when we were just we were just talking about Kilgore Trout talking about Kosovo and ethnic cleansing and the way he phrases it is all that good people can do about the disease of ethnic cleansing now always a fate accompli is to rescue the survivors and watch out for Christians. Yeah, I think I said like we said I don't agree with the <laughs> the belief, but it was uh, funnily put. Yeah, yeah. Uh, similarly humorous cigars, of course, are made of trail mix, crushed cashews, granola, and raisins soaked in maple syrup and dried in the sun. Why not eat one tonight at bedtime? Firearms are also good for you. Ask Charlton Heston, who once played Moses. Gunpowder has zero fat and zero cholesterol. Yeah, isn't that? I think that's from the intro. And he, yeah, he's he does a long sarcastic bit about how great cigars and weapons are for you. Yeah, it's like great. no, no, this is going great. Oh yeah, let's give everyone AR-15s. This is going to be fine. <laughs> my uh, my last one is also this, it's a very low key joke, but I really like it. It's toward the it's in the last fun yet. When uh, Kevorkian's being hustled off and Vonnegut's reaction is, with Jack gone, this lethal injection facility no longer feels like a home away from home for me. That was my closer, too. Amazing. I I saved that for last. Such a good bit. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Okay, so I got four left and I'll rattle them off. Everybody who was big enough and steady enough was going to get to hold it, cuddle it, gurgle to it, and say how pretty it was or how handsome. Wouldn't you have loved to be that baby? (laughs) It's talking about an Ebo baby. That he met that has something like 600 extended relatives and it's going to go around and meet them all. Um, I just thought that it was repetitive because it's his whole point about extended families. Viscerally affected me more than some other iterations. I was like, I would want to be that baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's plenty that we're skipping or, or just touching on because they've kind of come up in other pieces. But especially if you're just jumping into Vonnegut, that intro is like a pretty perfectly distilled version of a lot of his speeches to people. During my most recent near-death experience, I got to interview with... William Shakespeare. We did not hit it off. He said the dialect I spoke was the ugliest English he had ever heard, fit to split the ears of groundlings. He asked if it had a name, and I said Indianapolis. Take that, freshwater people. You talk like assholes. (laughs) (laughs) But how will I do this podcast then? just had to bring that up because you're here. Uh, I guess that's it. I was going to close on the same one about, yeah, the lethal injection facility. Um, Listen to it again, folks. Listen to it again, yeah. Get it? 
it, it's it's a lethal injection facility. Yeah. <laughs> and he likes it there. That's the joke. Uh, let's. Oh, no, I know what we can end on. Uh, he talked about that. Was it the gardener? No, the mammogram specialist was a poet. Yeah, Strax. Yeah. Uh, and Vonnegut's favorite poet from him, Strax, was, "'Tis better to have love and lust than let your apparatus rust." <laughs> That's a good ender. Let's Solid end on joke. that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can do two segments very fast. One of the segments is recurring characters update. <laughs> I mean, it's an easy one, but we haven't used it yet. Yeah. And um, well, <laughs> this is also the segment. Kurt Cameo. <laughs> <laughs> Like twice, come oh, on. We're getting silly. It's come great. on. Uh, because the recurring characters are Kilgore Trout and Kurt Vonnegut. Done. And that's about it. And uh, uh, it's also, it really. Cricket sounds. <laughs> <laughs> there is like, there's a cool through line to this really, really late period Vonnegut stuff where it's so driven by Kurt, the person himself, and also the one touchstone he keeps coming to throughout his career of Trout. Like beyond that, he's really he's really re- like refined everything in Timequake and this and other late books down to those things. We're just getting to the point yep. as tightly as possible. And yeah, and then I think we can do a segment called Vana What? Oh, you did a good job. Because there's not that much wrong with it. Vana What? Yeah, I, I only have two. I didn't. I didn't really pick out much of anything. There's one part where he's talking about Burnham Burnham and makes a point of saying that Burnham Burnham is an aborigine with white blood. And it's just All sort right. of an antique and weird thing to pick out. But otherwise, yeah, I didn't just have dated. much. Yeah. Uh, the groom gets one more pal, but it's a woman. The woman gets one more person to talk to about everything, but it's a man. Which I don't know. I, it's not like oh, sexist in and of itself. He's talking about why people need big families and just having yeah. a couple doesn't work. Right. I only disagree in so far as I don't think the genderedness has as much to do with it as he depicts. Yeah, probably. I don't know. My girlfriend really fully fulfills me, and she doesn't even listen to this, so I'm not trying to get brownie <laughs> points. Uh, and I feel like people know, yeah, you need also friends, your family. Oh. I, I just so didn't get more, what he was going for. That's all. You, I, I think you. it sounds like you more just maybe disagree with what he's saying. Well, I feel like I, he's saying... You know, the problem when a couple's home alone is one's a man and one's a woman. They have nothing in common. They can't talk. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, sure they can. I talk to my girlfriend about everything under the sun. They're both people. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's a bit sexist. I would not consider it a what if he just said two people's not enough. Right. A family should have more people. But he said, the problem is the man and woman get alone and they can't talk about anything. Right. It's two totally different exactly. humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, but this is all minor. And then Roberta Burke's epitaph was just, she was a sailor's wife. And he treats that as like really touching and a great move on her part. And I get it if she loved her husband a lot and that's her choice. But I don't know that he have to has to lavish attention on a woman. Yeah. And when she's dead, she wants her identity to be fully subsumed by the fact that she was married to this guy. Isn't that the ideal woman? <laughs> I just, <laughs> that rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, that all checks out. I, I get that, that all checks yeah. out. Yeah, I think that's about all the what's. Partly because it's such a short piece, and partly because it's so late in time. He's he's yeah. uh, he's, he's evolved as much. He's as learned he can. a lot of his lessons that he's going to learn. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> From there, I think we can do a segment called the meat. Chop and chop, slip, slip, slip. 
Serpent up that lake with me. You're drinking meat. Yes. <laughs> Gross. This is uh, where we get into any other big things that we want to get into about the text. From especially Timequake on, Vonnegut is very, very fixated on death. And I, I'm i I'm really excited about how he... Well, I'm, I'm not excited that he basically writes himself an, uh, an epitaph to his whole career in Timequake. He's like, well, I'm dead now. But I, I sort of love the idea of him deciding to just be a dead writer. You know what mm. I mean? Oh, I'll just write from death. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. I have questions that I'll basically just put to the group. Yeah. I know everything was beautiful, nothing hurt is many people's favorite Vonnegut line ever, and I see lots of people with it tattooed on them. I don't know what it means. Someone explain <laughs> to me the symbolic under meaning, like subtext, of everything was beautiful, nothing hurt. Is he saying that's true? Is he saying that's so laughably untrue? Is he saying we need to believe in that FOMA even though it's not true? I just want to know what it means to different people. So, like, if you're a, if oh, you're yeah. a Vonif pal, please go onto the page and explain, especially if you have this tattooed on yeah. your body. Facebook what were you thinking? What does it mean to you that you would get it tattooed on your body? Because yeah. it's one of the few uh, classic lines of his that's not crystal clear to me. Yeah, Facebook.com slash Kurt Vonneguys and yeah. at Kurt Vonneguys. And, and also at Swaim underscore Corp if you want to yeah. go straight to Michael. And I bring it up because in this, he adds to that phrase he's repeated several times. He says, Not everything was beautiful, nothing hurt. And he says, and when I die, I will have gotten off so light, whatever the heck it was that was going on. Which I'm just amazed he feels that way, given that he was saddled with depression, suicidality, the firebombing of Dresden. He's still like, man, a lot of people had way worse lives than me. And he's right. It's just, it puts in perspective how fucked up life can be. <laughs> but I'm like, Kurt Vonnegut thought he got off easy, even though he was a prisoner of war and all this shit. He was yeah. like, I made it through okay. I'm fairly wealthy and I'm, I made it to my 80s. Like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> he did well. Yeah. He did. I think maybe my favorite Vonnegut thing ever is the thing from Breakfast of Champions where we are all bands of light and we are all. Yep. Um, and I, I think I connect it to, I think I connect everything was beautiful and nothing hurt to that in the sense that like, even if things were bad, we, I got to, you know, we got to live and we got to be, and that is meaningful in and of itself. In death, why worry about the, yeah. the other t- tough things? Is what my, is, my is the tunnel made of? This is the only <laughs> matter of import. <laughs> I like that wood is in the running. Is How it would viscous? It be wood? <laughs> yeah, it's a wooden tunnel. It's a wooden tunnel dipshit. Would be very obvious. <laughs> I want like Al Capone to come through the tunnel. He's like, what's this tunnel made of? It's clay, motherfucker. Get off my nuts. <laughs> Done deal. Decided. Freshwater person, Al Capone. I also wanted to bring up John Brown quotes Hebrew 922. Of course, John Brown tried to apply violence to free slaves from slavery. And he quotes the Bible, which says, without blood, there is no remission of sin. We're not going to settle that here. But I think that's one of the most important and timely questions before humanity right now. And since it's mentioned, I have to mention it. And I just want to invite our listeners to mull it over themselves. Yeah. I uh, was raised in the hippie ethos. Very much feel like the best thing is always nonviolent protest. Nonviolent protest will always win. Love will always win. And violence it might get stuff done in the short term, but it begets more violence and chaos, and the system becomes more chaotic. I don't know if I fully feel that way anymore because I've started to conceptualize that it might be an act of white privilege or simply privilege of mine having a nice life to be able to think that every solution can be peaceable. And when you look at history, there's a lot of fucking instances of shit doesn't get done for hundreds of years. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's finally a war. And then there is a demonstrable increase in the rights to the people. Um, so I don't know. And it's like uh, Run the Jewels make very good arguments about how, you know, people of color are often anti-gun control, but not because they want to go hunting or they want AR-15s. They're worried, and rightly so in many cases, that that's they actually do need a gun. There's no defense against the yeah. government and the police without that. And again, I don't know where I land, but I would love, I just think that's a discussion we should all be having. Uh, when an yeah. oppressed people tries peaceful protest and doesn't get respect and tries legal recourse and doesn't get respect and have literally been slaves and like have all these statistics on their sides proving that they're oppressed for hundreds of years, is there a point where they have to punch you in the nose to get your attention? Mm. Is that morally yeah. wrong? Are they, like, I really don't agree that Antifa is just as bad as Nazis. <laughs> There's a point at which you respond to oppression with aggression, and I don't know where that line is, but I'm trying to figure it out right now. Well, especially if it's violent oppression. Like, right. Then you're like, well, I guess I have to hit back? I don't like, know. Yeah. Obviously, I'm taught to think the Revolutionary War was good. Yeah, well, and even because even John Brown, I don't know how much people are even aware that he existed or what he was trying to do, and, and what he was trying to do was was a violent slave insurrection across same the entire as, yeah. South. Nat Turner is, yeah, yeah also tried and the it's, same. Uh, and I think, and I am not that versed in it, but I think across civil rights thinking, people wrestle with what you're wrestling with and thinking about, like, like oh, is, is violence a solution to it? And of course, the people who only preach peace, like, that's the way I want the world to be, and I yeah. think they're like angels walking among us, but they always get fucking shot in the head. <laughs> so it's hard to, like, at some point, you have to wonder, yeah, does some portion of people who believe in the right things need to fight back physically against what's going on? That guy heavy. Yeah, but, heavy but it's substantial, though. Well, mm-hmm. And Kurt's wrestling with it in the book. Yeah, and I, I just mention yeah. it, although I proffer no real solution, just because it seems like very timely right now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, everything feels timely now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess. There's been some books that, like, yeah, no, slapstick. Yeah, it all checks out. Dead Eye Dick, about, yeah. Oh, well, and partly because like, yeah. Vonnegut's an excellent writer, so his timeless themes. Are, yeah, universal. Are timeless. That's true. Yeah. It's crazy that you can read a Shakespeare play and still identify with, like, an emotion a character has. Even though it's written yeah. in this language that's so arch, it's almost not even our language anymore. And it's just great how, yeah, universal yeah. human experiences are. Shit hasn't changed that much. Yeah, even and even with the political stuff, like, a few months back, that one production of Julius Caesar became a Trump issue. Like, this this stuff keeps Which happening. It's just so crazy because yeah. when Obama was president, they had a care actor who looked like Obama playing Caesar. Right. And no one gave a shit. Right. right. It's just because Trump gives a shit because he can't take a fucking, he can't take the heat, man. Right, because he reads the internet instead right. of he working. he can't brook yeah. insults. <laughs> Bad job for someone who cannot brook insults. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Is there any other meat you want to dig into? I don't nah. know. Yeah. I got some cheese for you. Ooh. Maybe we can sample some fine cheeses in a segment called Nothing to Do with Cheese, Kurt Vonnegut. You got your manchego here. Ooh, that ooh. goes nice with this quince I just jam. had manchego for real. It's This fantastic. is a boiled calf skull. Manchego, highly recommend. And that's the whole platter. <laughs> I like that our music for that one is just us talking about Mitchell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is, uh, as you probably know, if you're if you're this far into the show, we grade Kurt relative to himself. Kurt did not give this book a grade in life. I lean toward around a B minus for it. It's pretty insubstantial and pretty great for what it is. Yeah, you have to judge it by the fact that it doesn't take long to read. So like, you didn't yeah. invest that much time. I got a lot out of it for how little time investment it was. 
after hearing him read it out loud, that is the preferred way. I immediately cool. like that better. That's the preferred way to experience it. I would give its book form a C, but I would give the audio form a B plus. Yeah, that's fair. I definitely recommend listening to it if you can. His voice delighted me just now. <laughs> yeah, and I and I haven't found a way to listen to all of it, but you can hear quite a bit of it on WNYC's website that we'll link to in the in the the comments and description and so on of this because uh, they have about counting rapidly like 14 of them which is most of it there are 21 total interviews yeah in the book so so you can you can really uh, vibe out to a lot of it and you're right like it it is also the kind of thing i don't find this as much with stage plays and things but this is a lot of this book is a transcript of something that was meant to be an audio piece so he he aimed to make it as good of radio as he could yeah and then packaged and i it. think it is better so as radio yeah it plays that way yeah yeah I, it doesn't reach the heights of his very best stuff and it's not trying to it's just very right. very good for what it is because it's for spoken word yeah <laughs> yeah those are the greats and let's do a segment called related reading this one went fast so you have time to read more <laughs> you're welcome let's uh, this is <laughs> the runner of the episode but it's done i will never fart again in any future episode of vana guys i promise that joke is dead you're safe now this is where we pick out other texts and things that remind us of this i have two and one of them is very very quick all right well then I'll, i have five so i'll start yeah uh just you don't know jack on hbo i recommended uh not oh, too long ago it, who, why, who's harry nielsen and why is everyone talking about him another terribly titled but excellently made documentary <laughs> this one's called you don't know jack uh but if you want to know more about dr jack kevorkian al pacino plays dr jack kevorkian it's yeah. an hbo produced documentary and it's good it gives you all the facts it's not a documentary is it i'm sorry oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> docudrama oh yeah like it's inspired like... by real events right right, yeah, right. Yeah, like yeah, primary yeah. colors or late shift yeah it's a, a dramatic it's... retelling of what dr kevorkian's life was like but of course it gives you a lot of facts about his life biopic that's the word I should have said. Really cool. Yeah, it's probably on whatever HBO streaming thing you have if you have it. Oh, yeah. It's on go right now. I checked yeah. before this. Uh, my my quick one, it's just quick because I mentioned it an episode or two ago, um, but Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders, mm-hmm. an amazing novel, and it's speaking to the dead about what matters about life and America. It's it's very in line with this. Yeah. And fantastic. I'll throw out two gamins. Uh, I actually, I have read the novel American Gods, but I'm going to recommend the TV show American Gods. Season one came out not too long ago. Yeah. And I have very high standards for TV, and I thought it was fucking phenomenal. And I liked the book already, so I was ready to, you know, say it wasn't as good. Yeah. But it's great in its own way. It's really, really, really good. I highly recommend it. When Crispin Glover finally comes into the show. You're, just, it's, you're just golden. Because <laughs> oh, Crispin, Glover, Crispin Glover's set up as, for many episodes, they're like, you're going to meet this guy. He's the creepiest guy. He's the villain of the show. He's so creepy. When you meet him, you're just going to be creeped out. And then they give Crispin Glover a full episode where it's just like him in a room. The creepiest guy you've ever seen. He's amazing at that. <laughs> creepy in such a compelling way. I love Crispin. Oh, that's so exciting. It's great. I've been saving it for when I have some downtime because you've said it's awesome. And it the visual, like the team, whoever, whatever team's making like the visuals from the set design and like the lighting coloring, it's like it is a visual masterpiece, especially for TV. It's at, it would be a great film visually. <laughs> cool. It's really killing it. Oh, um, man. Yeah, and then also by Gaiman, a really short, short story you can find inspired by Jonathan Swift's modest proposal called Pancakes. <laughs> uh, you can find it online just by Googling Neil Gaiman pancakes. Pan- uh, Gaiman, yeah. 
Gay men. Yeah. Pancakes. G-A-I-M-A-N. Yeah. And uh, I recommend it. And again, I won't spoil the twist. But if you know A Modest Proposal, you know the theme about which it dances. Yeah. It's about breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> it's about packaging and naming. Well, my other one, it's also, it's very short works. It's a piece called The Tent. And it's a book of a lot of tiny experimental short essays and short fictions and almost poems by Margaret Atwood. And it is sort it reminds me of this Dr. Kevorkian book in that it takes a lot of things that she's expanded on in novels or essays or much longer pieces and really tries to break them down into the most direct and small and experimental shapes possible. Like it, it's a hard book to describe other mm. than go check out the many little crazy things she tries. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Of Handmaid's Tale fame. So you know she, Yeah, Margaret like, Atwood. You know is... you like her if you like Handmaid's Tale, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, I have two more short stories. A Harlan Ellison called SRO, which is means standing room only. If you are a theater kid, you know that. And that was inspired by the Clarence Darrow thing where he talks about justice and cruelty and all those things just being entertainment. SRO is about a a bunch of beautiful aliens that are like, they travel through space just as individuals, like Galactus, right? They're huge and they can go through space and they all look different. Like one's a giant moth, one's a, they're like different kinds of aliens and they arrive in Manhattan and they don't communicate. They're just like these giant Godzilla type monsters that came from space (laughs) and they put on this elaborate show. They like hover in the air and do this like dance and everyone comes out to watch it and they do it for like months and months and they become a fixture. And until, you know, there's like a yearly Mecca where millions of people all over the world come to celebrate and watch the show and it's standing room only. And of course, one year when they finally feel that there's enough people there, they eat them. (laughs) They were just waiting for more people to come. (laughs) <laughs> oh, they're like, come see us. Yeah. And, then, and if you like the Harlan Ellison <laughs> short stories I've pitched on this show all throughout, I'll highly recommend a series of graphic novels. There are either two or three volumes called Dream Corridor, where a bunch of amazing comic artists adapted Harlan Ellison's stories into comics. And SRO is a particularly good one as well. So the comic's good cool. and the story's good. And then last but not least, we both talked about how much we love that image of Eugene V. Debs flying, unfolding its wings and flying away. Yeah. So I just have to mention the Gabriel Garcia Marquez story, Very Old Man with Enormous Wings, which is also excellent. I haven't read it, I don't think. Oh, it's really good. It's a longish short story by the same author as 100 Years of Solitude. Um, great magical realism about a carnival that comes to town, and like one of the exhibits is a head that just has spider legs, and one of the exhibits is a very old man with enormous wings, and when the carnival leaves town, the very old man stays behind with his family, and some stuff happens. It's if you're only familiar with Western-style fantasy, it's a kind of, like, magical realism is this whole new world of fantasy that American and European culture don't have. It's totally a Central and South American thing where it's, like, a mashup of fantasy but also our cultural traditions and also, no, we really believe magic is real. We're going to present it as truth. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah. And, and often, like, casual. Yes. You'll just like, be living life. A magical thing happens. You continue to 100 years of solitude. You'll be going through, going through, going through, and everything that happens reads totally like War and Peace, like a description of stuff that would happen in history. Yeah. And then they'll be like, and then he wished so hard on a turnip that he became a goat and he wandered away. And then later, uh, the taxes were increased. And you're like, wait, back up. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's, and it's widely referred to as magical realism. It's a great genre. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's such a cool pick. I'm going to check that out. That's um, all I got. 
I, that's all I got too. There's no uh, Jack. Partic- you can wheel the machine in. We're ready. <laughs> uh, there's no particular Vonnegut news, mainly because, uh, as Michael said, there's a little space between us taping this and this coming out. Um, and then the next episode is about the essay collection "A Man Without a Country" from 2005. It's really great. We're gonna love it. And uh, then programming wise, we're planning on that being the uh, the completing episode of this show of Kurt Vonnegut guys, which feels very strange oh, to say. Oh yeah. Um, I love doing it and I love doing it with you, Michael. Super and, down. and uh there's it's all been double plus good. <laughs> That's Orwell, different guy. Uh-huh. No. Uh and and uh we still have this feed and platform and maybe there's future things to do. Uh the Hope plan so. the plan right now is to to round it off there at least for the time being. That will take us through everything Vonnegut published in life. He passed away in two thousand seven, a year or two later. And uh so there, there are posthumous things that are very interesting that we aren't going to get to, but I, I'm glad we're going to, uh, as kind of planned, get through his whole career. His whole life. Yeah, yeah they yeah. really screwed us with that Drone King drop right at the end of our run. <laughs> Thanks a lot, people who also love Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> well, I, and I'd also say the vast majority, if not all, of his posthumous works are early, early short stories yes. or or like late essays or unfinished things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot of like middle. Uh, I know, I just publish. don't want it to end. Yeah, I know. Me too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. Yeah. And, and we've got another one coming. And and Happy New Year. Yeah, we'll see you next time at least once more. And if this isn't nice. What is? What is?